Hello again and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this time in the year's dwindling days, we look out to sea for a story of refugee journeys in a continent-spanning theatre stream for children. We all come from somewhere. We unroll a choir map of Ireland and make a journey into winter with Robert Cogenvin. But we begin this time with Jennifer Walsh, who has a seasonal gift idea. And in 2021, if you're not gifting an NFT variously described as one of those blockchain thingies that are rocking the art world or a soon-to-tumble pyramid scheme. Well, if you're not, then we know which camp you're in. This is Jennifer Walsh with Things No Things. Imagine I hand you a Christmas present. You tear off the wrapping to find a large bag containing the following items. One, holy chest plate. Two, a pair of divine slippers of perfection. Three, dragon skin gloves. Four, a woe shout demon crown of protection. Five, a necklace. Six, a titanium ring. Seven, a silk sash. Eight, a book. Sounds like props from an episode of Game of Thrones or from a live action version of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Your brain immediately starts coming up with plot lines imagining the medieval Irish warrior saint who might wear that holy chest plate or the supernatural battle where the demon crown of protection might come in handy. But now, imagine that instead of handing you a physical bag, I simply give you a text file containing only the list of items. No pictures, no details, just the list of gear I read aloud. This bag of stuff doesn't belong to any movie or game or book or character universe. It's just a list of adventurer gear, entirely free of associations. What do you do with it? Because what I've sent you is bag 1234 from Dom Hoffman's Loot Project, which, incidentally, is currently selling online for over $7,000. Hoffman, an American entrepreneur and programmer, launched Loot back in August. He created 8,000 Loot bags, each a list of eight items of randomised adventurer gear. Hoffman gave the bags away for free as NFTs on the Ethereum blockchain. As long as you had a cryptocurrency wallet and you could pay the fees, you could claim a Loot bag. And people did claim them. They were gone within days. Since then, a huge community has emerged around loot. People have written stories and made artwork. They've worked together to plot a universe where epic sagas featuring their gear might be played out. Owners of the bags have created guilds and communities based on the contents of their bags. They've written loot newsletters and they've met up physically to play live action versions. What's fascinating to me is that when you acquire loot, you don't acquire an object. You don't even acquire a 3D representation of an object. You stake a claim to virtual equipment in a virtual, imaginary universe which is emerging in real time through the collaborative efforts of a huge number of people. And at the end of this strange year, during a time where more and more of our lives are conducted from home, remotely, digitally, it seems oddly appropriate to be thinking about imaginary adventurer gear for a game that doesn't exist yet. 
and heartening to consider how communities can form so effortlessly to build something new. Jennifer Walsh with Things Know, Things There. And if you'd like to hear a little more about NFTs, our recent Culture File debate on NFT art is available from the RTE site on the Culture File podcast page. Or if you have a look on Twitter at Culture File Pod, we've tweeted a link. It feels like hardly a week of 2021 went by without news of a project forced to think again, to rebook, rewrite or reimagine, which is what happened to We All Come From Somewhere, a show about the fraught journeys of refugees and asylum seekers heading for Europe. This time, though, the rethink added an extra degree of difficulty by involving four different theatre companies in four different countries with performers working in as many languages. To the rescue here, as in many other cases, came the online stream. After a brief stage debut in the Czech Republic, We All Come From Somewhere was reborn as an online film for young people, created by inclusive theatre companies in Italy, the Czech Republic and Greece, as well as KCAT Art Centre in Callan County, Kilkenny. Culture File spoke to Irish director Janice de Broyer about the long journey of a story of long journeys. It's not something they are. It's not something they chose. Originally, we all come from somewhere... So it's as natural as the wind. ...is a creative Europe project which involved four inclusive theatre companies coming together from four different countries in Europe to make one theatre show. And this theatre show, in its original format, would travel to each of the four countries, um, each country hosting the other three, but all part of one script, so to speak, that we would all work together to create this one show. The starting point was actually for each country to identify a particular group of refugees who've settled in that country and each theatre company would interview the some individuals from these particular groups of people and those recordings would then go to the scriptwriter, and then based off those interviews she created the original stage script in Ireland the group of refugees that we identified was members of the Rohingya community who have settled in Carlo actually and there was a number of them who came and gave these incredible interviews with Cindy Cummings who's our choreographer and movement director Cindy and Anya who works here in KCAD as well they met with them individually and they sat down and had a chat there was a list of questions so they worked their way through those questions um, and they the individuals told their stories as, as much as they could we only ever got to do our first show in Prague in January of 2020 so right before the world shut down as each country was hosting most of the script would be done by that country in their own language and then each of the other countries had a section that they did in their own language that that they toured uh, or piece that they did so when we were in Prague Uh, The production was in Czech and it was in Italian and it was in Greek and it was in English. My name is Sheila Hennessy and I'm from Kikenny in Ireland. Um, I did some movement and I had to tell tell a story, a story 
as well. The story was that I didn't know. I, I did not know if I could could see anyone ever again, <laughs> because it wasn't safe anymore. I wasn't. I wasn't in. I wasn't safe. I had to move from one place to another. Originally, we thought that the original idea would go ahead, but that it would simply happen in 2021. However, towards the end of 2020, it really became apparent that it wasn't going to be a runner for everybody to travel, that it wasn't going to be safe, that the world wasn't going to be open enough. So then the idea about turning it into a film and adapting it to a screenplay came about. I suppose in January of 2021, once kind of everybody had decided, yes, let's do this because the last thing we want is for the project to completely go away. So then started the process of figuring out how do we do this? Everything had to be done in consultation with the other countries, lots and lots of meetings. Shane, would you like to? Yes. Shane, could you stay there and you want to stay about that far away from the mic? Yeah. Perfect. So a little bit closer. A little bit closer. Oh, sorry. There's always a, 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 a barrier. A barrier. There, there's always something to, um, there's always something to, uh, to stop you to, to get from A to B and B to C. For all of us, when we were in that initial period of rehearsals and we were doing all of the research and looking at what's going on in the world with refugees and the migra- you know, migration and all of that and the horrible things that, I mean, that's how the play was born. It's where the idea was. We all really felt like our eyes were really opened in a big way. And when the pandemic happened and everything shut down, there was a little bit of, God, how, how do we go back to that? Because there's this whole other world that we live in now. And we were a little bit like, oh God, should we be referencing the pandemic? Should we not reference it? How does this affect the story that we're telling? And in the end, as it turns out, the the more we continued with the process, the more apparent it became that actually we really need to stick to our guns and tell the story because if anything, it feels more important now than ever. Back in July, it was just a really weird, I don't know, kismet that sort of the week that we released the film those terrible events came out on the news, the more recent one. Sort of, I think, made everybody feel, God, this story has not gone away just because the pandemic has happened. So now more than ever, I think it's an important one that we're telling. I was talking there to Janice De Breuer and actors Sheila Hennessy and Shane M. Byrne. And for your Winterville watching list, We All Come From Somewhere is free to watch on weallcomefromsomewhere.com. A living map of Ireland's choral scene highlighting groups near you has been the long-term project of Dr Hilary Moss and Sing Ireland. Moss is a senior lecturer in music therapy at the World Academy of Music and Dance at UL, where she's been looking at, among other things, the effects of music and singing on health and wellness. Now more than 120 choirs are on the map, providing another step in making space for singing in the medicine cabinet, as Hilary Moss told Culture Files, Anya Gallagher. I'd been running a group for a few years in the acute psychiatry ward 
where I called it a singing group and people just came and sang on a Monday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning and I saw huge benefits from singing for your health and well-being and I was becoming increasingly convinced about the benefits of that and I also helped to set up a workplace choir at the hospital and again saw a lot of the social benefits of people singing like you know you had doctors standing next to porters and cleaners next to nurses everybody joining in having fun getting to know each other and achieving a lot through singing. I'm Dr Hilary Moss. I work at the University of Limerick in the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance. I teach and lead the MA in Music Therapy and I do research around singing health and well-being. I was very interested in singing and health and we began researching in UL and we have a singing and social inclusion research cluster with my colleague Professor Helen Phelan uh, co-running that and we there are lots of us at the Academy of Music that are interested in singing for health and well-being. So I started working with Liz Halitzer, a PhD student, and she was looking at singing on social prescription, which is a particular a kind of a movement that's increasing within the medical and health world where people, if you go to your GP, maybe you have chronic pain or you have a long-term health condition, the GP may refer you for exercise or for something like singing or another activity as well as giving you medication or giving you physiotherapy referrals, that kind of thing. So we were very interested in, about singing as a social prescription. So all in all, we began to realise that there was very little information about what choirs existed in the country, what singing for health programmes existed. So we started this piece of research and spent a year to find out where all the singing groups and choirs were that had any kind of direct remit for singing and health, which shows you, you can click on it in your county and it shows you what singing groups are available in that county, who they're for, how you audition or whether you don't have to audition if they're for a particular client groups, such as a choir for people with cancer or a choir for people living with mental health issues or whether it's for everyone in the community. You find when you're talking about singing for health there are kind of two camps there's a camp who think the singing is brilliant really good for you who kind of get it who know that it lifts your endorphins it you know it it bonds people socially if you look at babies and their parents you know the first interaction is often that sing-song voice that you talk to a baby with they're listening to pitch from the earliest ages you also know you can see and hear that people with dementia in the very late stages can still sing songs when they can't talk anymore. So we kind of have people who know about that who say, yeah, we definitely want this for our nursing home or we definitely want this for our um, mothers and babies who are at risk. You know, we, we know this works. And then you have the group who want the evidence of benefit, which is really reasonable. I mean, if I wouldn't take medication without knowing it had been tested and trialled. So in the same way, people want to know, well, what is this singing? Is it worth spending money on? Is it worth investing in? And there is quite a lot of international evidence now on singing and health. Particularly, there's a movement now called Sing Strong, led by a music therapist called Feeney Cave. And this is all about singing for conditions like COPD 
and other respiratory illnesses and of course now looking at long Covid and whether it can help with long Covid. There's quite a lot of evidence around the social connecting that happens in singing. So we know that lots of different social activities help bring people together who might find it quite difficult to come to social situations, people with mental health issues or people with chronic anxiety. We know that lots of different activities work, but what we know about singing is that it seems to break down the barriers between people quicker than other activities. So it's not necessarily better, but it can have a quite a quick effect. So there was a really interesting study by Daisy Fancourt and her team She's one of the lead researchers, and that was for postnatally depressed mothers and their babies. And they found significant benefits from coming to the singing group on their general levels of depression. And it wasn't that they wouldn't have recovered anyway with other treatments, but it was quite quick. That's what they kind of concluded. One way also is it a kind of strange time to have this project launching in terms of it might be one of the only times we've heard of us singing being a dangerous activity. Absolutely. The, it's interesting. I believe the most recent research is that singing isn't a dangerous activity. They found now after all this, you know, when all when all still not allowed to sing very much, but apparently it's not ed- it's not much worse, but I wouldn't quote me. I'm not the scientist on that. So actually probably I'm being a bit dangerous here saying that. It is a difficult time. It's a difficult time for musicians, for music therapists. People have had their jobs slashed, you know, in music therapy and in kind of singing for health circles, community singing. You know, it's been decimated to a large extent. So maybe it's also a kind of clarion call. And we took this at the launch with Sing Island. You know, it's a call to say we can sing. It is important. You know, it should be back on the agenda as soon as possible. UL's Dr Hilary Moss there, who urges choirs and directors to contact Sing Ireland to add their information to the map. Check out our Twitter at CultureFilePod for a link. We heard recently on Culture File from inside the Arctic Circle from composer and organist Robert Kugenvin. He's more usually to be found at home in the west of Ireland, but originally comes from Australia, all of which leads him to have some complicated reactions to the ultimate Christmas landscape in which he finds himself this year in his audio postcard from a winter wonderland. When I was about eight, growing up in Australia in the early 80s, around the same time I was starting to learn to play music on an electone organ, a Bing Crosby cassette with Walking in a Winter Wonderland would often accompany family trips at Christmas to visit the grandparents. The irony of such a song was not lost on me, as it was featured at a time of year when temperatures often topped the high 30s. But perhaps there was a strange displacement, where one might wonder what such a walk could be like. Now 40 years later... I'm doing artist residencies in Arctic Norway and Swedish Lapland, home to reindeer, sleds, Christmas lights and St Nicholas, but not to forget elk on the icy roads, polar lows, blizzards, frozen lakes. 
I'm interested how the Scandinavian and Nordic imagery, or its sweeping landscape and weather, has pervaded our imaginary around the world, that is, our subarctic, tropical, equatorial, pan-European imaginary, to become the hallmark card stereotypical Christmas landscape. I found myself in a place where the literal imagery of this winter wonderland, the one that we are immersed in every year in shopping centres, house fronts and those hallmark cards, was all around me. It was what was normal. It was what happened at this time of the year. In Swedish Lapland I was struck by the stillness, lack of wind, the shape of the trees, heavy with clumps of snow resting upon them and staying for days. This shape we're familiar with is the typical Tannenbaum, their stacked triangles seen as the representation of Christmas in Australia when the weather was the opposite, hot, humid. These snowdrifts are everywhere, the pervasive whiteness smoothing the landscape. Christmas lights stand out against this ever-present whiteness as the darkness, early sunset, lack of light, brings long nights and blink and you missed it short days. Here in northern Sweden, there's reindeer, sleds with young and old getting around on them, and the snow is dotted with red houses, which helps find them in the white landscape. Amongst this, a lot of time has been spent in Lutheran churches, recording pipe organs, the indoor quietude against times of minus 20 degrees, whilst outside was the twinkle of long frozen snow, sparkling in the torchlight, streetlight and car headlights, feeling like a glittering road leading into the darkness. This was all in stark contrast to Arctic Norway. By Lofoten, in Vesterålen, there was constant wind, brutal weather, sudden polar lows, the aurora. Nightly displays of the aurora, seen without the familiar long exposure photographs, collapsing 75 frames into just the one that we see as the photo, it became a quiet, breath-catching spectacle. Ribbons of colour unfurling across the sky, greens and whites through to purple and reds. Seeing the photons released by the impact of particles from a coronal mass ejection. Solar weather colliding with the ionosphere 90 to 150 kilometres across the planet. It became no longer about a region or a town. It's the Earth interacting with the solar system and things beyond our terrestrial sphere. These are the Christmas lights everyone wants to see and capture their mercurial nature appearing at a time of their choosing, but lighting up the sky in a way that is strange and unexpected. Back on Earth, by the coast, in Balavorg, at the very end of the Earth, the far north of Norway, the constant waves of the Barents Sea daily smash the seawall protecting the town. Just south and inland in Katashok, home to the Same Parliament, and its members gathered in traditional clothing to debate Same policy, their bright clothes against the stark white snow, while along the rural roads outside the town, reindeer skins dry on the side of houses, freshly slaughtered by Same people, tinges of blood on the pelts where the next once had been, a continuation of traditional ways amongst the indigenous people of the north. 
Across the locations of my series of artist residencies in Arctic Norway and Swedish Lapland, the projection of the Santa myth, the popularisation of these many forms of its narrative and imagery, does it find its basis in the immigration of Norwegians to the US from the 1600s onwards, reproducing images of their homelands? Not really. The adoption in Germany, transferred to other countries, fed back through the English adoption, seems to have led us to a simulacra, something that always already existed, where a projected reality happens to loop back over and exist as a manifest reality in the still, white, snowy expanse of the Scandinavian and Norwegian winter wonderland, just like Bing would sing about on that tape in the car, his words from all those years ago echoing into this white, broad, and now archetypical Christmas landscape, all ready to walk in. Robert Kurgenven there, wandering in a winter wonderland. And finally, as the solstice approaches, our correspondent Eve B. Golden has been contemplating the textures of the year that's waning and imagining the one to come. This is Eve B. Golden with Decide. There are so many things to say around now, as usual. So many things to give, reasons to change, people to console, and songs to sing. This moment is charged with pivotal energy, loaded with velocity, and since we are the vehicles speeding blindly into and through more time, carrying new weight and letting other weight go. This moment begs we place a flag in the ground to make a checkpoint we've passed. I was thinking today about how well I've composed this life as a mode of pivoting away from judgment and doubt. The things I've survived, the scars I now bear, the wonderful people I've met and the connections I've severed, it's all essentially one orchestration of my coordination. And what I have to show for it distilling this specific form and with what energy and knowledge I have to share is a gratitude only really felt in hindsight. How far we've all come and what we have to show for it. I feel sure that this is not a close at all but a pivot. This switch into a new year. Bringing more experiences and knowledge to decode a year hence. My dear friend Nat told me about the Greek origin of the word crisis and how it begs, we note, turning points in the vitally important state of things, the point at which change must come. The word crisis has been on my mind and breath a lot this year, and learning this now means so much to me. As a chariot arrives at the narrow turn in the ovate hippodrome, there is a call to action the next choice changes everything whether the outcome is a faded end or a triumphant continuation is up to the champion my crises are turning points in my story our crises are calls to action they ask that we focus on what comes next rather than dwelling on the present moment Of life, Wolf says to look. Always look life in the face and know it for what it is. 
and love it for what it is. Here we stand at the brink of yet another beginning. What's behind us has brought us to this wonderful, exciting moment. This is the point where change will come. I echo Wolf to you now that you might be bold enough to reinvent yourself, your struggles, your triumphs, your goals, your strengths, your dreams, every day hence. Be bold enough to decide, to build, and to grow. Eve B. Golden there with some stops and starts. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. There's no Culture File Weekly on Christmas Day, but we'll be back again on the other side of the hostilities. Till then, bye now. <laughs>